I don't need you to worry for me because I'm all right. I don't want you to tell me it's time to come home. I don't care what you say anymore. This is my life. Go ahead with your own life. Leave me alone. I saw you folks. Everybody join in. Just kidding. Billy Joel, My Life, 1978. <laughs> My, how a lot of life has passed by. But I bring up that song because in the American, I guess, soul, we are drawn to the rebel. The person that stands up and says, I'm my own person. Don't tell me what to do. It's part of our DNA as Americans and perhaps more importantly as sinners. You see, it's part of our, you know, heritage from getting free from Britain in the American Revolution. And that's kind of coming full circle again as the uh, Broadway show Hamilton is becoming popular now, uh, revising what it was like for our founding fathers to leave the authority of Great Britain. It's part of our civil rights movement. It's even kind of a rite of passage as, you know, teenagers, right? Oh, they're just going through that stubborn teenage rebellious stage is what we say. But it can manifest itself in resistance to legitimate authority. And yes, each of us is our own person. But often we're saying, I am my own authority. I don't need to listen to you. The truth of the matter, though, is that God has placed each one of us under authority that he has placed over us. And when we have an attitude of rebellion against that authority, ultimately we have an attitude of rebellion against God himself. And we become candidates to head out into the spiritual wilderness. If you've been with us through this series, which I've titled Lessons in the Wilderness, we've looked at five destructive attitudes and looked to replace them with life-giving attitudes. We started with having a complaining attitude and replacing it with having a thankful attitude. We looked at having a coveting attitude, that is letting our desires be the thing that drives us, but replacing that with an attitude of contentment. We've talked about having a critical attitude and replacing that with an attitude of love. And last week we looked at having a doubting attitude and replacing that with an attitude of faith. And as you've guessed, this week we're looking at having a rebellious attitude that does harm us and replacing it with an attitude of submission. And remember, the Apostle Paul has recommended that we look at this because he reminded us in his letter to the Corinthians, chapter 10, verse 11, that these things happened to them as examples and were written down as warnings for us on whom the culmination of the ages has come. We need to look in the mirror and say, God, how is it that you want me to change? So before we get into God's word, and we're going to be in Numbers chapter 16 today, if you want to put your thumb there or your finger there. Um, let me pray for us, and then we'll get into God's Word. Hmm. Indeed, Lord, these things were written for our instruction as a warning. And so we ask, Lord, that you would do your work in our hearts, in our minds, and show us areas where we are indeed out of sorts with you, where we're in rebellion against you. And give us the grace to submit to you. So open the eyes of our hearts, we pray. 
and use your word. Let it go out and not return void as you promised. Lord Jesus, it's in your name I pray these things. Amen. All right, Numbers 16. I'm going to read the first 14 verses. Korah, the son of Izhar, the son of Koath, the son of Levi, and certain Reubenites, Dathan and Abiram, sons of Eliab, and On, son of Peleth, became insolent and rose up against Moses. With them were 250 Israelite men, well-known community leaders, who had been appointed members of the council. They came as a group to oppose Moses and Aaron, and they said to them, You have gone too far. The whole community is holy, every one of them, and the Lord is with them. Why then do you set yourselves above the Lord's assembly? When Moses heard this, he fell face down. Then he said to Korah and his followers, In the morning, the Lord will show who belongs to him and who is holy, and he will have that person come near him. The man that he, man he chooses will come, he will cause to come near him, you, Korah, and all your followers are to do this. Take censors, and tomorrow put burning coals and incense in them before the Lord. The man the Lord chooses will be the one who is holy. You Levites have gone too far. Moses also said to Korah, Now listen, you Levites, isn't it enough for you that God that the God of Israel has separated you from the rest of the Israelite community and brought you near himself to do the work of the Lord's tabernacle and to stand before the community and minister to them. He has brought you and all of your fellow Levites near himself, but now you are trying to get the priesthood too? It is against the Lord that, that you and all your followers have banded together. Who is Aaron that you should grumble against him? Then Moses summoned Dathan and Abiram, the sons of Eliab. But they said, We will not come. Isn't it enough that you have brought us up out of a land flowing with milk and honey to kill us in the wilderness? And now you also want to lord it over us? Moreover, you haven't brought us into a land flowing with milk and honey or given us an inheritance of fields and vineyards. Do you want to treat us Treat these men like slaves? No. We will not come. Now, if you've been with us in this series, you know what the circumstance was before this takes place. God had supernaturally rescued the Israelites from Egypt, sustained them across the wilderness, met them, uh, many supernatural signs with his, his presence of a pillar of, of smoke during the day, a pillar of fire at night supernaturally provided food for them, told them, here's the land I'm giving you, a land flowing with milk and honey. And they said, no, we won't go. We're scared. And they backed off. So God said, fine. Then you're going back in the wilderness. Then they repented and said, no, we're going up. We're going up. And God said, no. You had your chance. No. And they went up. They went up anyway and presumption, and they were beaten back. So now a coalition of leaders have come to Moses and Aaron, and basically they've said, 
You have too much power. Verse 3, you have gone too far. We need a change. We need a change in leadership. And it was led by this Levite named Korah and Datham and Abiram of the tribes of, of Reuben. And we'll talk about the significance of that in a moment. As well as 250 well-known community leaders. So this is not a fringe element coming from you know the back row. This is some of the sec- second-tier leaders who are, are coming against Moses and Aaron. And they are determined to change and replace Aaron, who is God's appointed priest to represent the people before God and Moses, God's appointed leader, to speak for God and to lead his people, Israel. Number one, God has established authority and leadership, and to rebel against that authority is to rebel against God. Go back to verse 11. It is against the Lord that you and your followers have banded together. <laughs> what is Mo- What is Aaron? No, it's against the Lord. In a New Testament uh, explanation of this is Romans chapter 13, verses 1 through 2. Let everyone be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except that which God established. The authorities that exist have been established by God. Consequently, whoever rebels against the authority is rebelling against what God has instituted. And those who do so will will bring judgment upon themselves. What is God's established authority? In the Bible, it starts with a family. Husbands to lead their wives. Moms and dads to lead their children. Pastors, elders, minister, ministry leaders to lead the congregation. At work, it's bosses, supervisors, managers to lead their employees. Teachers to lead their students. Government officials from the president to police to lead everyday citizens. I want to ask you. As I went through that list, were you thinking about reasons or exceptions not to obey those authorities? Were you thinking for reasons not to submit to those particular authorities? And let me tell you, there are some limits, and we're going to talk about that later. But oftentimes, it's just in a heart that says, do not tell me what to do. Rebellion is a heart issue. It is a heart issue. It was true from the garden. It's true today. The prophet Isaiah has expressed it this way. In Isaiah chapter 53, verse 6, he says, All of us, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to our own way. The grace there is, says, But the Lord has laid the iniquity of us all upon him. Rebellion is a heart issue. Rebellion is failure to do what God wants me to do and doing what I want to do. And in this particular contest, context, we focus on the humanity of the leader rather than the God that is behind the leader. And so today I just want to focus in on six sources of rebellion. Six sources of rebellion. And I want to give credit where credit is due. Author and pastor James McDonald from Chicago has written a book called Lord Change My Attitude. And I got these particular um, sources from his book. But the first is jealousy. It's jealousy. Basically saying, why don't I have the position, the power, the prestige that you do? Again, verse 3. You have gone too far. 
The whole community is holy, every one of them, and the Lord is with them. Why then do you set yourselves above the Lord's assembly? We're all the same. We're holy. We're all equal in the sight of God. Who died and put you in charge? Well, they were half correct. Because indeed, God did make Israel his holy people. He did call them out among the nations. And God was with them, especially in the camp. But God had chosen specifically Moses to lead and Aaron to be his priest. It was his call. And this principle is, is illustrated in uh, Psalm 75, verses 6 and 7. No one from the east or from the west or from the desert can exalt themselves. It is God who judges. He brings one down and exalts another. And it's true in the church where we believe we're under a new covenant, right? He has made us a kingdom of priests. There's, as, as Protestants, we believe in the priesthood of all believers, don't we? And yet God has called each one of us to play specific roles. It says in Ephesians chapter 4, verses 11 and 12, it was he, talking about Jesus Christ, who gave some to be apostles, some to be prophets, some to be evangelists, and some to be pastors and teachers, to prepare his people for works of service so that the body of Christ may be built up. We cannot confuse equality with sameness. We cannot confuse equality with sameness. We may have the same value in the sight of God, but we have different roles called to play different parts, and God has put those people in those places. This leads into the second root of rebellion, what I call delusion, or what does it really mean to lead? Verse 4, when Moses heard this, he fell face down. Now that may seem obscure to you, but if Moses' goal really was indeed to lord over the people, to set himself above, then he would have a different response, wouldn't he? He might attack them. He might have them arrested. He might rebuke them. But his attitude is complete humility and submitting himself ultimately before the Lord. You see, here's the thing. Is it Dathan and Abihu and Korah did not understand that it was not about power or prestige or position. It was about serving the Lord and his people. And much of Moses' job was to intercede for the people we've seen through these, these five episodes. They had no idea what Moses had gone through to get there. The 40 years he had to spend in exile till God would call him back. What it was like to stand before Pharaoh, the most powerful man in the world. What it was like to be completely dependent upon God to bring those ten plagues to have the Israelites set free had no idea what it was to split the Red Sea and then see Pharaoh's army coming in hot pursuit right behind them. And then to lead this two million people who he felt responsible for into the desert where there were no resources and to be completely dependent upon God. And to hear them really complain almost at every turn. And at the key moment when he calls them to come into the promised land, 
they completely reject him. They completely reject the Lord in his leadership. Who wants that call? Who wants that call? Korah, Dathan, and Abihu thought they knew what that was like. Oftentimes, I think sometimes, because pastors or worship leaders or you know people who are up front doing ministry seem to get a lot of the attention, we can romanticize what ministry is like. We can romanticize the glory that comes with that, if you will. And some desiring position don't respect the process. First of all, to know that God called you. That God called you. And then the giving of self, time, energy, effort, resources, the heart and the emotions that go into it, the training, the apprenticeship, the disappointment when things don't go well. The rejection you feel when God's people speak against you. And the self-questioning you feel in brokenness. And I want to caution anyone, if you sense God is calling you into ministry, that's fantastic. It's good work. But it's hard work. But don't put that call upon yourself, assuming the mantle of leadership. Just know it's not about you. It's ultimately going to be about Him. It's ultimately going to be about serving Him and His people. Well, Moses, again, is very humble, and he doesn't defend himself, but he looks to the Lord. Pick it up at verse 6. He says, You, Korah, and all your followers are to do this. Take censers, and censers were this kind of fire pot or this little kettle where you put coals in it and then put incense on it, and there was like a, either a chain or a, or a rod to kind of extend this thing, but it was part of worship. This is what you're to do. And tomorrow, put burning coals and incense in them before the Lord. The man the Lord chooses will be the one who is holy. And you Levites have gone too far. Korah, you want to try this out? Okay, you're going to have an opportunity to do what the priest does. And all before this, God has revealed in his word that only the priest, those who are Aaron and his descendants, or to stand before God, to be able to offer sacrifices on his altar, to stand and make atonement for, for the people. That's what Yom Kippur is all about, the Day of Atonement. Only the priests could do that, and only the priests could stand and offer up incense. And there was a very specific prescribed way. Did you know that there's a recipe for that incense? You can find it in Exodus chapter 30. And to do anything different was to make a perversion of God's worship. And two of Aaron's sons, who decide to mix it up, put some spice, some Cajun spice in there or whatever, they find out the hard way that God is holy. And he needs to be worshipped on his terms. Unfortunately, their names are Nadab and Abihu, and they lose their lives in Leviticus chapter 10. But this is what, this is what Korah wanted. This is the honor that he wanted. And what happens here, another root of, of rebellion is this. It's ingratitude. Not being thankful for what God has given you. Look at verse 8. Moses also said to Korah, Now listen, you Levites. Isn't it enough for you that God, the God of Israel, has separated you from the rest of the Israelite community and brought you near himself to do the work of the Lord's tabernacle 
and to stand before the community and minister to them, he has brought you and all your fellow Levites near to himself. But now you are trying to get the priesthood too? It is against the Lord that you and all your followers have banded together. Who is Aaron that you should grumble against him? Again, I want to remind you that Korah is a Levite. The Levites were a tribe that were set aside by God. In fact, he calls them his own inheritance. They aren't counted in the census, as you as you read the um, in the Pentateuch when the censuses get taken, especially in in chapter in Numbers. But this tribe is set aside to take care of God's tabernacle, His holy place, and that's what Moses was talking about. And not only that, Korah was part of the Kohath clan. They were their special assignment was actually to come and pack up all the holy instruments in the Holy of Holies. They're the ones that got to cover them up to come to the most holy place in the tabernacle. It was a place of prestige. It was a place of honor and privilege. Again, they're from the same tribe that Moses are from, the tribe of Levi. You would think that they would be understanding what God has required, that they would be, he would be an ally. But now he wants what the Lord had not given him. Verse 10, again, you are trying to get the priesthood too. Instead of being grateful for what God had given him, he schemed to get what only God could bestow. And he believes somehow that Moses and Aaron are the ones that are standing in his way. Again, Moses tries to show him, look, you're revolting against God. It's not, it's not me, it's not Aaron, who are we? Ultimately, you're rebelling against the Lord. A man, a woman can only receive what God has given him, has given to her. And to pursue more is to put us in a place where we try and take what God has given others. It creates conflict with that person and it creates conflict with God and places us in a place of rebellion. Well, there are two parties. You see, these are strange bedfellows. Korah had his own motivation going after Moses. But Dathan and Abiram had their own motives. And again, they had a heart of saying, don't tell me what to do. And part of that heart, that root of, of rebellion was stubbornness. Verse 12. Then Moses summoned Dathan and Abiram, the sons of Eliab, but they said, we will not come. Again, I want to mention that Dathan and Abiram are part of the tribe of Reuben. Reuben was Jacob's firstborn. He was the firstborn. You know, in, in Mideastern tradition, he should have had the rights of the firstborn, but he sins against his father, having a, an affair with his father's concubine. And so he loses that privilege. Perhaps these men were trying to recover, if you will, that privilege, that position, that prominence to lead. And when Moses summons them to work out this conflict, there's conflict here. They say, no way. We're not coming. Because of pride and stubbornness. Now maybe you look at yourself and say, well, I'm stubborn. I'm stubborn. In fact, my mom told me it's, it's a strength. I want to tell you this. Do not confuse stubbornness with strength of character. With strength of conviction. 
Stubbornness says, I'll do it on my own terms. I'll do it in my own way. No. It is rebellion against God. Against God's appointed leadership. It's not a good look. And maybe you're saying, well, you know, I'm, I'm not stubborn. And, okay. Let me just ask you a few questions, because I have to ask myself these questions. Are you a hard person to reconcile with? If someone has offended you, is it really difficult to work it out? If so, perhaps you're stubborn. Are you easy to leave? Or are you really difficult? Are you a flexible spirit? Or your person says, no, it's, it's got to be done my way. I know the right way. And you might. You might know the right way. But if that's the way you operate all the time, then you are stubborn. And sometimes people just give in to you because it's just easier to keep the peace that way. Most likely you're stubborn. Stubbornness can lead us toward rebellion. But I think the major issue with Dathan and Abiram was the issue of disappointment. And as we look at this passage, I want you to note how they mock. They mock Moses. Verse 13. They say, isn't it enough? Kind of referring to what Moses has said to Korah, that you have brought us out of land flowing with milk and honey. Moses, this is what you said you were leading us to. And you brought us out of a place with milk and honey to kill us in this wilderness. And now you also wanted to lord it over us. Moreover, you haven't brought us into a land flowing with milk and honey or given us an inheritance of fields and vineyards. For Dathan and Abihu, I think disappointment was the main thing that was driving their trade. Moses, you have not delivered. You've not delivered. First of all, you brought us out of a land flowing with milk and honey. And they were referring to Egypt. Because, you know, there was a lot of agriculture there. There's a lot of uh, variety in, in diet. But unfortunately, they misremember. They were slaves. They have made a prison into a paradise in their minds. Second of all, they're saying, it's your fault that we're in this wilderness and we're going to get killed here. You know, they forget that they were part of a rebellion against God that brought them back out to the wilderness. And you have not promised to do what you said you would do. Verse 14. Moreover, you haven't brought us into the land flowing with milk and honey or given us an inheritance of fields and vineyards. You know, when we first left Egypt, you said, this is where we were going. This is what's going to happen. And now, but again, they are very convenient in forgetting their own rebellion against God early, the consequences that they were facing. But that's it. Even though their disappointment was misconstrued, it was real. It was what they were feeling, and it was what was driving them. I think sometimes when we're disappointed with leadership, we have a tendency to dismiss them. And every leader you're going to meet, folks, from Moses, the leadership here at Marine Community Church, is human. 
it's going to fall short somewhere. And when they don't meet expectations, when they disappoint us, we tend to think, I no longer need to follow this leadership. And folks, I want to tell you, leadership does have its limits. Okay? In the scripture, we can't be a people who are going against God's word. We don't want to do what's illegal. We don't want to do what's dishonest, unbiblical. And we want to, we don't want to do what's harmful to others or ourselves. In fact, the, the apostles said to the Sanhedrin, which were a authority, if you will, we must obey God rather than men. And that's chapter 5, verse 25. But again, we focus on their shortcomings. Maybe it's a church leader who is not holding up to the ideals that they preach or just not turning out how you hoped they would. Or a wife. Maybe it's a husband who is making selfish choices. And they're thinking, I no longer have to be under his leadership, his authority. Or a parent who is inconsistent. And our kids say, well, I don't have to follow mom and dad because they're not doing what they say. Or perhaps you know, it's our boss. Or the cop who is speeding. And yet we get upset when they pull us over for violating the law in our speed. We'll think, no longer do I have to submit to this person. No longer do I need to respect them, their authority. But God says, no. I have put them in this place. And I am powerful enough to use them even in their faults. And I'll deal with that leadership. But I'm powerful enough to take a crooked stick and still draw a straight line to accomplish my purposes. We have to understand that. The Lord Jesus Christ comes and submits himself to the earthly authority, right? And although it seems like complete injustice, God uses that even to accomplish his justice and salvation. We have to see that God is bigger than our circumstances, bigger than what we understand, bigger than what we can see. We need to look at the God who is behind that fallible leader. The problem is sometimes we don't give God a chance because we pull out way too quick on that I see that. That's wrong. So I'm, I'm out of here. I'm not going to deal with that. We have to understand that God has put us in that place also. And maybe he wants us to have an impact on that leader. I'm not saying it's easy, folks. I'm not. In fact, it's an act of faith. But your focus is not on the leader. It's on God who's at work in that leader, and maybe even in spite of that leader. So again, I'm going to ask you to examine yourself. Somewhere along the line, maybe sit down and write down all the authority that you're under somehow. And ask, how am I responding to that? Am I discounting it? And are my expectations realistic for that person? Sometimes they aren't. But also asking the question, how can I trust God in the middle of this? And this leads to the last root of rebellion. Distrust. Verse 14. Do you want to treat us like slaves? Literally, will you gouge out the eyes of these men? Say, 
saying, basically saying, these men around you are just blind yes men. <laughs> no. We will not come. Now here's the truth. Any leader worth his salt knows that trust is a bridge that takes a long time to build and a short moment to destroy. And we as the leaders here at Brink Community Church, pastors and elders, we try and do all that we can to maintain our trust. But here with Dathan and Abiram, they assume the worst about Moses. That he was all about lording himself over the people. And to invite them to come and see him and try and work it out was really Moses trying to pull the wool over their eyes. Somehow trying to deceive them and blind, make them blind and make them yes men. Let me ask you a question. When a leader does something that you don't like, that you disagree with, do you find yourselves automatically assuming the worst about them? Do you find yourself assuming the worst about them? You know, in the church, God has given us this charge out of 1 Corinthians 13 to love. In verse 7, it says, Love bears all things, it believes all things, and it hopes all things, and it endures all things. We like to extend that in marriage, right? We talk about it. We talk about it extending between each other. But do we extend that to leadership? Let me tell you folks, leadership is hard. I know we have a lot of leaders in this room, and you know it. But sometimes the decision you have to make is very difficult. It's just one little factor or one little thing that can go either way. And it's tough, and it, it requires saying, Lord, we need your wisdom. But it doesn't always make everyone happy. Leadership is hard. Leadership sometimes means making other people disappointed. That's something I've had to come to come to grips with. I can never make everyone happy. But I want to do what God calls me to do. Do we extend the benefit of the doubt to leadership in believing the best? Let me tell you, here at Berean especially, if you're struggling with the decision we've made, we'd love for you to come to us. Because we want you to hear our heart. At the end of the day, we may still disagree. But we want you to know the heart behind it. It's not about elevating ourselves. It's not about power or putting anyone else down. And sometimes we can be too much like the world. We assume because we have a limited information. You know, when I was uh, a junior pastor at a church years ago, senior leadership made a decision that I disagreed with terribly. And I was really troubled by it. So I went to the senior pastor and the executive pastor and I said, gentlemen, I, I'm struggling with this. Can you just tell me what's going on? And they were able to explain to me so much. Because sometimes you have to protect confidentiality, right? You have to understand that sometimes we can't share everything that we know. But after meeting with them, I even still disagreed with their decision. But I trusted their heart. They were doing the right thing. They were doing what they thought was best for our congregation in the eyes of the Lord. And now, I'll tell you what, 
being a senior pastor myself years later, I think I actually agree with their decision. But I had to submit myself to their authority at the moment. And say, I don't always know best. And I know that God has put these people in authority for my good, for my protection, for my benefit. And folks, again, I'm not going to try and pull the wool over your eyes and say there aren't abuses. I'm not going to try and tell you there aren't limits. But when we limit God to our leaders making decisions that only we agree with, we are limiting Him to our own understanding. And we are not submitting to Him. We are not trusting Him. Again, God is the object of our faith, not the human leader. And that's what we need to realize. So now, as a leader, I'm going to disappoint you right now. Because I can't finish this story. I'm going to be going on vacation, and this chapter is 50 verses. But let me tell you a little bit about what happens. I'm going to summarize real quickly. Because it doesn't bode well for these rebels. We're going to find out that rebellion puts us in a place to experience God's judgment. And it comes. God shows up. And basically, those with Dathan and Abiram's family, the whole clan and everyone who follows them are swallowed up into the earth. And Korah and his 250 guys that want to be priests, they get swallowed up. They get consumed by fire. It tells us that rebellion hurts us and it hurts others as well. But God's grace shows up in the middle of it as well. In fact, the people, the people raise up in rebellion at the very end of the chapter. Moses and especially Aaron step in and intercede and make atonement for the people. That God's judgment doesn't come down upon the people because rebellion puts us in a place to receive God's judgment. And then I'm going to refer to you, just write this down, Numbers 26.11. Numbers 26.11. I want you to read that later on and see what happens to the sons of Korah. Because God's grace is still in the midst of this judgment. Indeed, I think anything, if this shows us anything, again, that God hates rebellion, He hates our sin, and yet His grace is still available in the midst of that. Because when we do our own thing, we are indeed rebelling against, the God, against our God. But I want to read for you, the good news, if you will, from Ephesians chapter 2, verses 3 through 5, talking about ourselves. All of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our flesh and following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature deserving of wrath. Literally, we were children of wrath. We should have been consumed by God's judgment. But... Because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ, even when we were dead in transgressions. It is by grace that you have been saved. And I hope you can lean into that grace, knowing that God has made a way for rebels to be reconciled to himself. So let's be a people who submit ourselves to a God who has placed authorities over us, trusting Him. And let's be a people that are grateful for the grace that we've received for our own rebellion. 
Let me pray for us, and I'll have the worship team come on up and close this place. So, Lord, this is a, a sobering message. And we might find ourselves in one of these characters. And if so, would you give us the grace, Lord, to repent and to turn back and to realize you're not trying to hammer us. You're not trying to slap our hand or bludgeon us. But you're trying to get us to turn toward the way of life to align ourselves with you, our God, who is sovereign over all. So would you give us grace to do that? It's huge. Because, Lord, indeed we do see the fallness of the world around us. We see our own fallness and we wonder, how? How are you going to do that? But remind us that Jesus came. That makes all the difference in the world. It will make all the difference for eternity. It makes all the difference in us. So give us grace, Lord. As we know that one day you will return, Jesus, and set everything right. But in the meantime, we can trust you that you're going to work out your purposes even through infallible authority. For your purposes, for your kingdom, for your glory. Lord Jesus, it's in your precious name. I pray these things.